This episode is sponsored by Podcorn, a marketplace connecting podcasters to amazing podcast sponsorship opportunities, all with the click of a button. In fact, I use the Podcorn platform to get this sponsorship from Podcorn. So meta, I know. With Podcorn, there is no middleman. Podcasters of all sizes can browse and choose opportunities right on the platform, set their own rates and collaborate with brands directly. I've heard again and again that you can't monetize podcasting, but with Podcorn, I'm changing that and you can too. Join today at podcorn.com. Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Each week, I speak with citizen changemakers who spark civic engagement in our society. Our guest today is Adam Cohen. He's the author of Supreme Inequality, the Supreme Court's 50-year battle for a more unjust America. He's also a former member of the New York Times editorial board and senior writer for Time magazine. I've been thinking about the Supreme Court's power and the far-reaching effects the rulings there have in our everyday lives. This episode explains so much about the way we should be thinking about the role and the power of the highest court in the land. In the interview, we often refer to the court's history, so there's a bit of shorthand. The Warren Court was a period when Earl Warren was Chief Justice and led a liberal majority. This was followed by the Burger Court in 1969, which was a conservative majority court, and it has essentially stayed that way since. Warren Burger was nominated by Nixon. Another reference we make is to the 1976 Buckley ruling when the Supreme Court decided that limits to election spending is unconstitutional. When you hear people say that money is free speech, this is the ruling they're referring to. Also, we taped this conversation in June, right after the court decided that the 1964 Civil Rights Act protects gay, lesbian, and transgender employees from discrimination based on sex, which is the context for our comments about Justice Gorsuch. We discussed the court's perspective and treatment of the poor, the common misperceptions we have about the Supreme Court, and the ways in which it is supporting Republican and conservative power. What we've seen in the last 50 years has been a Supreme Court that has been very activist on the conservative side. So if we look at some of the things they've done in the campaign finance cases, including Citizens United, the court has very aggressively struck down laws enacted by Congress and in some cases state legislatures to keep money out of politics or to control its influence. The court has used a very radical view of the First Amendment to strike down those very good laws. So what we're seeing now is a court that is very confident in its own position, in its very conservative views, and it's using its power in many cases to run roughshod over the decisions of the democratic branches. Let's listen in. Thank you for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Your book is super fascinating. You really showed that we have been living in Nixon's court for the last 50 years and that the progressive Warren court was not only short-lived, but has essentially been dismantled. How did the need to dismantle the New Deal lead to the rise of the conservative court in the way that we know it today? 
Well, you know, we had one kind of court in the 1960s, and it was one that respected workers' rights, it respected welfare, it respected the rights of poor people. That was the Warren Court. And it was doing a lot of incredible things, many of which we all know have entered the popular culture. The, the Warren Court recognized the Miranda warning, right? The right to be warned that you had the right to remain silent. It, it was the court that handed down Gideon v. Wainwright, which was the decision that said that if you're poor and you can't afford a lawyer, the state owes to appoint one. It was consistent with the New Deal, expanding the rights of workers and poor people. And then all of a sudden in 1968, Richard Nixon is elected on a platform of changing the court, making the court more conservative. And in the three years after he's elected, uh, when he takes office, he gets four appointments and he's able to completely change this liberal court into a conservative court. And what's really fascinating is that conservative majority that Richard Nixon built in the late 60s and early 70s is still with us today. We've had that conservative court with a conservative chief justice all the way through. Talk a little bit about how that came about, because it's one of those things where people have a deep misconception that the court is really about meeting out justice. That really isn't the case. And for starters, of course, the justices that get nominated to the Supreme Court are always nominated by a president. And so they are, by definition, partisan. And so how did the Republicans pull this off? Because there was a chance that they couldn't have. That's right. I learned in school that the uh, Supreme Court was a sort of temple of justice. And we were inculcated with the idea that the Supreme Court was the institution that looked out for the disadvantaged and make sure that people's rights were respected. When you learn a little bit more deeply about the history of the court, you find out that what was the court doing during the slave era in the United States history? It was siding with the, with the slaveholders. During the segregation era, after the Civil War, when a black man sued and challenged segregated railroad cars in Plessy versus Ferguson, the court sided with the railroad company, not with the black man. In the early 1900s, the progressive era, when Congress was passing laws to protect workers, to outlaw child labor, the Supreme Court sided with the managers and with the companies that were trying to oppress. So that really has been the history. And, you know, the Warren Court that you refer to was a great liberal exception, but it was an exception. It was from 1954 when Earl Warren was appointed to 1969 when he steps down. There was a period when the court was a real champion of the poor and the dispossessed, but that ended and we got the Nixon court. It's important to realize how much of the Supreme Court we've heard of that gets such good PR was an outlier, a real exception to their role in history. So one of the questions that I asked myself the entire time that I was reading your book is, why is the court historically so conservative? Because it seems that it really shouldn't have been this way. But is it that it was set up this way almost in the Constitution or am I just not understanding it? Well, no, it's a great question. And as, as you mentioned in your last question, it is a court that's made up of appointments of the president. Starting with Nixon, we've had Republicans in the White House a little bit more than Democrats. So that's one reason we've ended up with a conservative court. But also, in, in particularly in the last half century, Republicans have been much more strategic about getting the court and holding on to the court. So Nixon went out of his way, took great, great pains to take control of the court. It was a focus of his. He actually drove some of the liberal 
liberal members off the court, crucially a, a justice named Abe Fortas, who would have provided the liberal fifth vote in a lot of important cases. Nixon blackmailed and scared him into resigning. So what we get is the conservatives have definitely been more focused on controlling the court. And there are other factors as well. You know, some people would say that the conservative presidents have done a great job of appointing the most conservative justices they can. And the Democratic presidents often appoint more centrist justices. But somehow, other than in the Warren era and a few other exceptional moments, all these things have led us to a court that really is on the side of the people in power. That's uh, totally counterintuitive with the way that we think the Supreme Court should be. Given what you just said, does the constitutional ideal of three branches of government acting as a check on each other actually function? Well, I still believe in it. I think it's important. I think the founders had a great idea there because whenever you have power too concentrated in one person or body, I think it does lead to tyranny. So the idea that you have three independent sources of authority checking and balancing each other, I think is a great one. And we've seen historically, it has done some very important things. During the Watergate crisis, it did take the Supreme Court to step up in a unanimous ruling and say that Nixon had to hand over the White House tapes. And those tapes ended up being so incriminating that they led to Nixon resigning. So having multiple bodies is good. The problem, though, is that the Supreme Court has not lived up to its ideals and the way it's actually functioned has been too much as yet another force for those in power, which Congress and the president so often are as well. Right. I think this is a fundamental misconception that a lot of people have, that the Supreme Court is really not an impartial body, but it's really sort of its own entity that seeks its own power and it exerts it upon the nation. How is it that the Supreme Court has built up its own power over the last 50 years in a way that I think that people don't fully comprehend or don't fully appreciate. You know, the decisions that come out of the Supreme Court are far reaching into our everyday lives. Yeah. And, you know, during the Warren Court, there was a, a rap that conservatives gave, which is that it was a court of liberal judicial activism. So they said that decisions like Gideon v. Wainwright, recognizing a right to counsel, Miranda, recognizing a right to be told that you can remain silent, that that was judicial activism by liberals. And they thought that that was a particularly liberal phenomenon. What we've seen in the last 50 years has been a Supreme Court that has been very activist on the conservative side. So if we look at some of the things they've done in in the campaign finance cases, including Citizens United, the court has very aggressively struck down laws enacted by Congress and in some cases state legislatures to keep money out of politics or to control its influence. The court has used a very radical view of the First Amendment to strike down those very good laws. We've seen it in the voting rights context as well. The heart of the Voting Rights Act, Section 5, which re requires jurisdictions to pre-clear any changes they make with the Justice Department or with the federal court to make sure that they're not going to hurt minority voters. That very important preclearance requirement, this activist conservative court struck down on very dubious grounds. So what we're seeing now is a court that is very confident in its own position, in its very conservative views, and it's using its power in many cases to run roughshod over the decisions of the Democratic branches. How does that work in practice? What is the primary mechanism by which a Supreme Court has essentially cemented Republican power more or less for years going forward? 
So I would say there are two main strands to what this conservative court is doing to support Republican power and conservative power. One is, if you look at their election law cases, it's just striking the degree to which they almost invariably rule in ways that will lead the Republicans to win elections. We saw that famously in Bush versus Gore, where they actually stopped the counting of validly cast votes just to ensure that Bush became president. But we see it in many other cases when they've upheld the very strict voter ID laws. They've struck down protections for minority voters in the Voting Rights Act. They've refused to step in when there's been egregious partisan gerrymandering that overall very much helps the Republican Party. In decision after decision in election law, it's amazing how many are five to four rulings in which the conservatives take the position that helps the Republicans to literally win elections and stay in office. But the second strand is the court has also really on its own reinforced the goals and the values of the Republican Party. So, you know, one thing that our Republican Party in modern times has stood for is making sure that business and the wealthy do very well and not being very concerned about the poor. You know, the thesis of my book is that income inequality and wealth inequality in our country, which we often attribute to many other things, to globalization, which is taking jobs overseas, to automation, which is replacing people with robots, to decisions made by the president of Congress, like tax cuts. I argue in the book that the Supreme Court's rulings in many areas have been a major driver of that because they've continually ruled against the poor, ruled against welfare rights, given the rich much more power to influence elections with their campaign finance rulings, and on and on and on. So I would say that this court is literally helping Republicans to take office, but also has put together 50 years of rulings that really reinforce Republican policies that really help the rich and hurt the poor. So explain what the purpose of oppressing the poor is for Republicans or for conservatives. Why would they want to do that? Well, you know, these are very deep questions about who has sympathy with the poor and who has more sympathy for those at the top of the hierarchy. Some part of it, I'm sure, is that Republicans have bought into the mythology of pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And we have to assume that those who are poor on some level deserve to be poor. But also, I just think a lot of the Republicans literally come from the upper class and are sympathetic with it. You know, one of the things I talk about in my book is at the height of the Warren court, it was striking that the five liberal justices who were doing so much of this had themselves grown up poor or on the edge of poverty. So I think a lot of it is also, on some level, really class identification. And what we have on the court right now is, with few exceptions, justices who really were raised in privilege, who went to privileged colleges and law schools, who had privileged careers in the legal profession. And that just ends up being, in most cases, the groups with which their sympathy lies. Yeah, that really struck me also in your book that the people who were most sympathetic are the people who grew up themselves at or near poverty. And it speaks so much about perhaps what kind of justices we need more of in the court. Today's episode of Future Hindsight is also brought to you by Jordan Harbinger. He hosts The Jordan Harbinger Show, a podcast that takes deep dives into the lives and minds of some of the most exciting people alive today. It makes sense that I like his show because he and I share a love of interviewing and the passion he brings to his show makes every episode a treat. With Jordan, you never quite know what you're going to get. 
From former CIA spooks to professional basketball players to famed economists, his show and interview style never disappoint. He puts a ton of work into his podcast, and I learn something new every time I listen. If you like Future Hindsight, I think you'll enjoy The Jordan Harbinger Show, too. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find the show at jordanharbinger.com. One question I have about this is that, you know, we talked about the court being essentially partisan, depending on who is president, who can appoint these justices. Is there really such a thing as a neutral court? And if so, is that really what we want? Yeah, it's a great question. I don't think anyone is ever truly neutral. But what we are getting now is a much more hyper-partisan court. And the way we can see this is look at when a new justice is appointed. You know, when President Trump made his appointments, there was no pretense that he was going to look for the best judge or best decisions on the lower court or whatever objective standards you want to come up with. It was always about we are going to find justices whose ideology we know. And he and Mike Pence went out and talked to conservatives and said, don't you worry, we are vetting these justices to make sure that they are ideologically pure. And you see it in the ruling about gay and transgender rights. There's a lot of feeling of betrayal among conservatives that Justice Gorsuch wrote in favor of transgender rights. And the reason they feel betrayed is on a very deep level, they don't see him as being just a justice who's deciding the law. They see him as that's a conservative seat. We earned that seat. We filled it with a ideological conservative and he betrayed us. So I think now more than in the past, we have an assumption that a justice is going to act politically, advancing an ideological agenda. And that makes for a very different kind of Supreme Court. Yeah, on that ruling, I was really curious why Gorsuch decided that. What, what do you think about that? I mean, hmm, what happened here? There are a few different ways of looking at it. One view would be that he truly has a view of textual interpretation. And as he reads the words of that statute passed by Congress, he feels it requires a certain understanding of what sex discrimination is and that that puts discrimination against gay people and trans people in the category of being illegal. Another view would be that there is a, a growing gap among, quote, liberal policies where even many conservatives, many people who are highly aligned with the upper class are more sympathetic these days to things like women's rights, abortion rights, and gay rights, but they're much more skeptical of the rights of the poor. So I see Gorsuch as someone like that. A lot of those conservatives are still just as punitive about poor people, about people on welfare, as they ever are, which is why I made that the main focus of my book. It's unquestionable that being poor is punitive. So this is kind of like a two-part question. One part is, after Nixon appointed Berger to take over, but there were a handful of decisions that essentially unraveled the war and court's decisions very quickly and then basically became a slippery slope. So what are those? And then the second part of that question is, if we are able to install a liberal court, what would be the first few things that need to be decided to reverse this and, let's say, make the poor 
a special minority group like based on race? Great. Okay. So you, you've touched on a lot of really important things there. So first, there was that moment of inflection, as you say, when the Burger Court takes over. And I embody it most with the two different welfare rights decisions that were decided literally two weeks apart. One ends my first chapter on all the good things the court did for the poor, and one starts my next chapter on all the bad things the new Nixon court started to do to the poor. So at the end of the positive story for the poor, the court decides a case called Goldberg versus Kelly, which was a really uh, remarkable decision that said when localities and states want to cut people off from welfare, they have to give them a hearing first to make sure that they really should be cut off. That gave poor people around the country an enormous right to due process. Two weeks later, though, uh, a poor family in Maryland challenged a really unfair cut in their welfare benefits, which was done by just adopting what they called a family cap. And it said, if you have more than four children, we're only going to give you the amount of money you would get if you had four children. So other children don't get any money at all. There was a very strong equal protection challenge to that. The Supreme Court ruled against the poor family. And then after that began to rule more and more against the poor. But then my next chapter is about what the court did in education law. And that is just so crucial. When the Burger Court takes over, it gets two enormously important education cases. The first one from Texas was a Texas federal court actually ruled that states have to fund rich and poor school districts equally to make sure that school children all around the state have access to the same educational opportunity. That was the ruling in the lower court. The Burger Court reverses that five to four. The next year, there was a really strong decision out of Detroit from a federal court there, which said that since they couldn't integrate the schools in Detroit just by moving around students within the city, because it had become so overwhelmingly black at that point, that they had to have busing across urban suburban lines to ensure that white and black students actually went to school together. That would have been a transformative ruling for the country. The Burger Court overturns that five to four. I think those decisions were incredibly important. So what could we do if the liberals took the court back again? Really undo all of those things. And in, in the area of the poor, it's exactly what you said. The court was getting close, I believe, to recognizing that poor people are what the law calls a discrete and insular minority, the way racial minorities, religious minorities, and some other groups are. And because of that, the court should give specially tough scrutiny, be more likely to strike down laws that hurt them. That would be a powerful tool if the court said that the poor were a discrete and insular minority. The other two things I would say that would be really important are reversing those two education cases I just mentioned. Imagine if the Supreme Court said the Equal Protection Clause requires equal funding for all school districts in the state. And imagine if they said it requires busing across city suburban lines to make sure that public schools are integrated. And then finally, the most damaging thing I think the court has done has been the campaign finance rulings. And if liberals could just overturn not just Citizens United, but the underlying principle, which was in a much earlier decision from 1976, that money is free speech and say money is not free speech and start upholding the laws that Congress and the states adopt to limit the role of money in elections, that would, I think, have a very large positive impact on American politics. So, well, how would we get there? Because, for example, with Citizens United, like you said, there have been a number of cases that preceded that laid the groundwork for something like Citizens United, starting with Buckley. And so 
how would we reverse that? Can you do that in a case in one fell swoop? But also you have to wait for a case to come before the court. So how does that actually work? Or do you need Congress to write legislation? Well, the problem is that Congress can't because when Congress does it, the Supreme Court keeps striking it down. The only two options would be the Supreme Court changing its approach or a constitutional amendment, which many Democrats have called for. But those are really, really hard to enact. So what I think we need is first to get a liberal majority back in the court, which could happen if Vice President Biden is elected in fall. There already are four liberal votes on the court. We just need one more. The question would be how quick they would be to break with what is now very well-established precedent and say money doesn't equal speech. And I think it would be a process, but if they would start upholding reasonable campaign finance laws and then eventually get to striking down that Buckley principle, that money equals speech, since Congress can't do it, I think we're unlikely to get a constitutional amendment, although it'd be great if we did. It's really just a matter of getting a good liberal court in there and then giving it the time, I hope, to finally do the right thing. So given everything that I know now, it seems pretty dire for an everyday person to even bother to vote. But what are two things you think an everyday person like me could be doing? Well, honestly, the most important thing is getting the right person in the White House. The reason presidential elections are so important is there's so much power there, so much power in every direction, but that includes to shape the Supreme Court. So I would say the first thing is to get a Democrat in the White House who will appoint the right kind of justices. The second thing, though, is when that Democrat is in office, to hold them accountable, not just to appoint a Democrat, but I would like to see a real progressive voice on the court. Let's make sure that they appoint a few rabble-rousers. There have been some amazing justices in the past, like Thurgood Marshall, who was a real voice for the poor on the court, like William O. Douglas, who was pretty much of a radical. Let's get some real loud voices on the left who are as loud as the very conservative voices on the right. So I'd say those two steps, get a really good president and then make them do the right thing when it comes to appointing justices. Oh, great advice. But let's say we never are able to reverse the court and let's say we will be conservative for another 50 years. What is the logical end game? Well, you know, people are thinking very creatively about this. And there is a movement right now to actually do what's called court packing. They say that, you know, if the Democrats take the White House and take the Senate uh, and take the House, they should actually pass a law to expand the number of seats on the court. This is something FDR threatened to do in the 1930s when a very conservative court kept striking down important parts of his New Deal. In 1937, he threatened to pack the court to expand the number of seats. And right after he did that, the conservatives backed down and started upholding his New Deal laws. Historians debate over whether that's why they did it. But that's a precedent when FDR threatened to pack the court. So some people are saying, you know, the only way we can really make progress right away is expand the number of seats on the court. And unlike reversing, you know, the campaign finance decisions, which, as I mentioned, would require a constitutional amendment, it does not require a constitutional amendment to expand the court. That's actually set by statute. And the court did not originally have nine members. So just passing a law, the court could do that. It's kind of controversial because some people worry that if you start packing the court, then every party that has the ability to will and maybe make it more political. But if the court continues to really keep its boot on the neck of the poor, I think we may see more and more support for expanding the court and putting some more liberal justices on it. 
Yeah, that's a great idea. But how is it that the Supreme Court is so fundamentally undemocratic? And why is it that people don't understand that? Yes. I mean, you know, the powers that be just are very good at getting their way, right? So the Republicans and the special interests, the wealthy interests they represent, have been laser focused on holding the Supreme Court, winning the Supreme Court, and liberals have not been as focused on it. But I don't think it's impossible. I mean, we saw during the Warren era that you could have a very progressive court really standing up for the little guy and the little gal. And I think that's possible again. You know, one thing I tried to do in the book is to show how one man, Nixon, had such a huge impact on the court and left an imprint that's lasted 50 years by his moves. We can have a liberal version of that. If we do the right thing and get a court that we like, we could have a court for a long time too. I think all things are possible in politics. One of the messages of my book is, you see how terribly effective Nixon was? Why don't we be just as effective for our side now? Yeah, I agree with that. But in any case, looking into the future, what gives you hope? Well, certainly the events of, uh, of, of the last few weeks and the public outpouring on the street and the recognition we now as a society have for the fundamental inequalities, it's reached new levels, it's having an effect, the polls are showing that. So I actually think, although this is a very troubling time and we've had to see some horrible, horrible videos of things that absolutely never should have happened and are sickening to watch. And although we've had this terrible disease and we've had the quarantines and we've all been living through a lot, there's also a lot of very good things happening right now. So in fact, for people who care about creating a more equal society, these are, you know, oddly enough, some of the most encouraging times in many years. Well said. Thank you very much for being on Future Hindsight. Oh, thank you. I, I really enjoyed it. As I mentioned earlier, this interview was taped in June, so the four liberal justices on the court have now been reduced to three. With the Senate Majority Leader and the President promising to fill the vacancy left behind by Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's passing as soon as possible, we could well be facing a Supreme Court that is even more conservative and on the side of corporations and the rich. I don't know if they'll succeed, but in the event that they cannot pull this off before Inauguration Day, the best way to prevent another conservative justice on the court is to flip the Senate, where Supreme Court nominations are confirmed. Early voting has already started in Virginia, and from the footage I've seen, people are motivated to vote and are lined up even before the polls open. After the justice's death, record-breaking donations poured into the coffers of Democratic candidates, which may boost the chances for victory for those who are in close races. If you care about the Supreme Court standing for a more just and equal America, make sure you're registered and that you go out and vote. Make a plan about when you're going to vote today. I plan to vote early and in person. Next week, our guest is Jess Kutch. She's the co-founder and co-executive director of coworker.org, a lab for workers to experiment with power building strategies and win meaningful changes in the 21st century economy. When people are motivated to come together to take real risk to try to improve their jobs, 
There's usually like a commitment to their workplaces, to their companies, to each other that is greater than in workplaces where that's not happening. And I think people often think, well, if you're trying to unionize, you must have a really bad workplace. But that's often not true. And I wish we understood workplace organizing as really celebrating that interconnectedness and trying to work together to improve our jobs and our work lives. We discussed the crossover skill set of organizing in your workplace to organizing in civic life, the importance to talk to each other about what you encounter in the workplace, and the role of technology for successful workplace organizing. Until next time, stay engaged. I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for continuing to listen to Future Hindsight. Our executive producer is Mila Atmos. The audio producer is Peter Fedak. And our associate producers are Miriam Zumbul and Brooke Sion. Be sure to listen to us on Apple Podcasts, futurehindsight.com, or wherever you enjoy podcasts every week. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.